Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's show. I am Liz, joining you from Central Virginia and the unceded lands of the Monica Nation. And I'm so glad that you're all here with me today. So raise your hand if you think the American dream is a concept desperately in need of radical revision. And my hand is really, really high right now. (laughs) The American dream, as most of us know it, is this assumption that whoever you are, no matter where you're from, you can achieve success if you're willing to work hard enough. And there are so many problems with this idea that I don't even know where to begin, but I will name a few. First, racism, indigenous genocide, sexism and misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and ableism all mean that the dream has never really been available to everyone, that success within a capitalist framework is all that we should be aiming for, that hard work should take precedence over everything, including our relationships and our own well-being, and that human dominance over all living species on the way to this, quote, success is natural and even favorable. Well, none of this is a dream that I wish for myself or for my children and any of their descendants or for anyone, but what dreams do we want to cultivate instead? What American dreams guide us toward healing ourselves and the earth towards restorative justice, towards radical inclusion that really does make life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness available to everyone. I suspect that we need to hear and see and dream lots of dreams to realize and live up to our full expansive potential. And my guest today has provided us with a beautiful revisioning of what that American dream looks like for her and her family. And I don't know if she'd agree with this. We'll get into this. But I personally see the imprints of the sacred feminine all over it. Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber is the founder and executive director of the Te Home Center, a nonprofit eco-retreat center that empowers marginalized women by teaching about revolutionary women through art, writing, retreats, and courses. She is also the author of the new book, Queering the American Dream, a memoir about her queer family's 18-month trek across the country in their camper named Freya, while being guided by the wisdom of 16 revolutionary women from history and mythology. Angela holds a PhD in art and religion from the Graduate Theological Union and has been a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies and a professor of divinity since 2005. In addition to her memoir, she is also the author of seven other books, including four listed in the top LGBTQ religion books. Angela is also a professional artist with over 100 paintings of revolutionary women sold in homes and galleries throughout the world. And she's joining us today from her home in St. Petersburg, Florida. Angela, thank you so much. What an honor to have you here. Thank you for having me. I feel like I need to shout amen, a women, all they, after after that beautiful introduction that you gave about queering the American dream and reimagining it, um, I almost feel like we can, all right, time to go home because you just (laughs) preached it right there. (laughs) Well, I want to say that that was uh, co-created with you, whether or not you know it, because a lot of it was inspired by your book. So there you go. (laughs) Well, I absolutely love it. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, um, I'm, I always love to start with that, with people hearing about their spiritual and religious backgrounds. And I'm especially interested in hearing yours. My, my listeners know, I always mention a little bit, but I, I grew up in Georgia. Uh, I was raised a Southern Baptist. Um, and so I, you know, in reading your memoir, I know we might have some things in common there, but I, I'd love to just, just start at that point. Absolutely. So as you likely know, I grew up as well in Atlanta and, um, Though I didn't grow up Southern Baptist or even Christian necessarily, I come from a non-religious family, but it was the Bible Belt. I was living in Southern United States, so Christianity definitely prevailed, and it was definitely um, an evangelical, bordering on fundamentalist version of Christianity. And So even though I wasn't raised 
in a particularly religious tradition, I did have a very conservative salvation experience when uh, Vacation Bible School drove around and picked up kids from the project complex where I lived in and brought us. And so I had a very conservative salvation experience there with every eye closed and every hound and I see that hand. And um, so I had that experience at the age of nine. And then after that, <clears throat> religion, like I said, wasn't important to my family. And so I never went to church or really anything like that until I was a teenager and ended up having another very conservative experience where I, I call it my just was my boyfriend experience where I was invited to um, a conservative evangelical non-denominational church. And at that point, I didn't know that there were different versions of Christianity or that the divine feminine could be a part of the Christian tradition. All I knew was that was a religion. And so, <clears throat> pardon me. So I ended up going to that congregation because they had a free rock climbing wall and I was interested in rock climbing. And in that experience, I fell kind of head over heels in love with Christianity and with Jesus, hence the Jesus is my boyfriend. But what was uh, profound and very disheartening at that time is that it was a very pivotal time for me. It was when I was deciding where to go to college and what to do with my life. And at that point, I had planned on going to Juilliard, studying the performing arts and spending a career, having a career in the performing arts. But the youth minister sat me down and explained that dance and the performing arts brings glory to me instead of to God. And so I abandoned all of mm -hmm. that, ended up going to a small liberal arts college that was associated with Baptists and ended up being taken over by the Southern Baptist Convention while I was there um, in a manner that really parallels what happened to a lot of the seminaries in the 80s and 90s for the Southern Baptist Convention. But luckily for me, when I was there, I did have moderate and one fairly progressive professor in the religion department who uh, helped me to reimagine what it means to be a Christian at that time, who introduced me to feminist theology and who told me, you know, if you have passions and desires and skills and talents in the arts, and you have this faith that means a lot to you, why can't those two coincide? And so even though they did not know very much about dance or the performing arts or the arts in general and how it intersects with faith, they encouraged me to research and learn more about it. And I did, and that was kind of my entry point into a more progressive faith tradition. Mm -hmm. And well, and I, so I guess I was gonna say too, um, I mean, clearly, you, you chose this path as a vocation, right? So, um, so the Christianity stuck or there somehow it worked for you. It yeah, did. it did at the beginning. Yes. So I ended up, um, one of those professors, um, Dr. Doug Weaver, who's still a very important part of my life, um, ended up getting me an interview at a church when I was only 18 years old, a freshman in college. And I became a youth minister and his children were in the youth group. And so I started doing that at a very young age, clearly the summer after my freshman year of college, right before I turned 19 years old and um, ended up becoming ordained when I was only 22, um, I believe only 22, and uh, did that for a solid 14 years, was a pastor. And then it became really toxic for me. Um, and when the death threats and hate mail mounted and mounted after being the only uh, Baptist church in the entire world at the time with two out lesbians as head pastors and the congregation filling up with these sexist and heterosexist microaggressions, I ended up leaving. But I realized in leaving the pastorate and in leaving that particular church after 14 years of service, that I wasn't just leaving that church or that faith community, but that I was leaving the church altogether. And I realized along the way that there had been this progression in my preaching where I went from saying, I believe to we believe to our tradition teaches us to the Christian tradition teaches us because I was letting go of that tradition without even realizing it. And so now I say, I hold my ordination with an open hand. Um, it has not been revoked and I don't plan to renounce it for a host of reasons but it's not the tradition that I'm choosing to raise my children in or that I choose to abide by myself anymore. 
Yeah. And I want to, I want to, I want to really explore where you are now, but I also want to go back and kind of catch this thread of what I call the sacred feminine. And, you know, one thing that I've learned over doing these shows for a couple of years now is that, well, that language maybe resonates with some, doesn't resonate with others, you know, so maybe you wouldn't frame it that way or use that language or the divine feminine, but I'm wondering how and where that fit in to your story? Like, were you, I've talked to a lot of people who are like aware from the beginning, they're like, oh, this is BS, man. Well, who's this male God? And where's the, mm. the feminine? I wasn't like that. So I'm just, I'm curious how that came in for you. And I would definitely use that language. Um, I, I teach a course called the Divine Feminine and Global Perspectives with the School of Global Citizenry and then um, for doctoral students. So that's something that's incredibly important to me. But in my first years in the Christian tradition, I definitely would not have used those words. But that's because they weren't the words that were being used by the faith leaders that I was learning to respect. And I thought that in order to be a Christian at that age, 17, 18, 19 years old, that I essentially had to parrot what I was told and become what I was told a Christian looked like. <clears throat> so in those early years, I wouldn't have abided by that language. But prior to that, I was raised by a single mom and had a lot of um, an aunt who was really important to me and a lot of examples of very strong women who maybe wouldn't have used the word feminist or feminism, but who did embody it in the way that they lived. And so I was a feminist from a very young age. And it was this introduction of Christianity that kind of plucked feminism away from me. And so there was a rejoining after, after kind of dedicating my life to Christianity, those first couple of years, I started integrating feminism back in. And it started with language for humanity, instead of calling humanity man or different things like that, like we see written in the King James version of scripture, or that people even use in common language every day, even though it was dubbed academically archaic before I was even born mm -hmm. um, in the early 70s. And then from there, it started shifting into language for God, where I didn't want to use he in male language or father language for God. And then from there, it started shifting even more where it wasn't limited to the Christian tradition, but was learning about goddesses and different powerful figures from history that were women from across faith traditions, and even those who didn't abide by a particular spiritual tradition, but who were themselves incredibly spiritual. Yeah. And so, and so where does that bring you today? You know, like where, how would you even describe your, your faith or your spiritual experience? And I also want to acknowledge that, or give space for you to say, if that's changed from the completion of your book, right? Cause we are, mm. I, I'm really moved by this um, Octavia Butler, you know, the science fiction writer who has said that God has changed. And I'm like, oh, I feel that, you know, like it's yeah. always shifting, but so anyways, I'm, I'm curious where you are now. Well, the term that I use for myself is one that my wife actually coined, and we say that I am a strategic theist. And, and by that, I mean that when you look at feminist philosophy and the, and the history of feminist theory, you have people who are essentialists, which is kind of how feminism started, who believe that there is an, an innate essence hence the word essentialism, to what it means to be woman. And then those who are constructivists who believe that everything about gender is constructive, um, constructed. And that's where I would find myself. But a lot of us who are constructivist or post-structuralists draw upon essentialism for political gain for women. And I do that in my language of theism um, or the study of God, that normally for myself and my own personal spiritual um, devotion or, or, or piety, I wouldn't use the language of God for me because I believe that God is a socio-historical construct. However, as an ordained queer woman, when someone comes to me, a queer kid who has been disowned by their family and told that they're going to burn in hell because of who they are, I'm not going to look them in the eye and say, you know, God is a socio-historical construct, so none of this really matters because that's not going to help them. But what's going to help is if I take their hands in mine and look them in the eye and, and pray to the God that they believe in and say that they're created as a person of worth and dignity and that God is weeping alongside of them at the fact that their parents can't acknowledge the fullness of their humanity. 
And at first I felt like doing that was hypocritical for me when in actuality, I believe more in a goddess tradition or a, a lack of God at all, but that I wouldn't embrace the word atheist because that's a little too firm for me. And agnostic is a little too wishy-washy for me. But this term strategic theist, that I strategically draw upon the language of God or goddess, depending on uh, who I'm talking to and what the needs of that person are. Whereas for me personally, I'm not going to use that language for myself and my own spirituality. But when I'm speaking and um, asked to pray on behalf of others, I will. Mm -hmm. Well, and something that occurred to me as you were speaking, I want to get into your, your book and talk about that. Um, so I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. <clears throat> but some one of the things that I, I realized is that throughout your book, which, you know, is about your journey, right, with your family and um, the the land is it's a character, right? As if, if yes. you know, in, if we use it in that language. And so I wonder if at all, if um, your spirituality includes, you know, if we're going to put a name on it, animism or that experience with the land, because I'm thinking of some of the things you wrote about, like, um, you know, like lying naked in a canoe in a lake by yourself and just how, how spectacular that must have been. And if you, you know, do you experience, you know, God, the divine and that, is that part of your experience? Definitely. I wouldn't use the God language, but yeah. so, and that's why I don't use the term like pantheism, for example, because you can't have pantheism without the theos, which is the Greek word for God, Yeah. <clears throat> but definitely the animism and that um, land and spirit is alive and active and holy and sacred for me. And that really is, embodied, I think, in I lived for five years in Hawaii and spoke quite a bit in the book about our time in Hawaii. And there's the notion of aloha aina, which loosely translates as love of land, but is deeper than that because the aina, the land, is alive and it's your ancestors and it's your family and it's sacred and it's holy and the way that you treat it um, must be pono or righteous. And so I think that Indigenous ways of knowing, and in particular, in my experience, um, Aloha Aina, and the way that the Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiians speak of land and treat land, and really embodies my own experience and feelings about nature and being in the world. And I would definitely say that I wrestled a lot with how I had kind of abandoned the notion of the grace of God. And it was around the time that I also had retired from dancing professionally. And so I was abandoning this notion of grace. And by grace, I mean like pirouettes and tourgetes and, and mm -hmm. dancing and, you know, that kind of grace. So I had clung to those notions of grace um, for the years of my ministry and my professional, professional dance career. But here I was um, embodying uh, Wendell Berry's poem, The Peace of the Wild Things, where you're held by the grace of the world and you're free. And so I felt that um, and in the canoe or even just floating in the water where he says he goes to where the wild herrings sit, I believe, and you're held by the grace of the world and you are free because you're marinating on those who do not tax themselves with the forethought of grief. And so definitely in traversing the American landscape, it was this beautiful juxtaposition or contrast where I came face to face with almost every corner of the United States and this gorgeous beauty that we get to call our home as citizens here. And that was contrasted with the fact that we were tra traveling during um, Trump's election cycle and immediately following the Supreme Court's decision to rule marriages like mine to my wife legal and then the reactions to those and the Pulse massacre and the Stanford rape case that received a lot of um, news. And so traveling during those times, it was just such, um, such a polarity to be face to face with wandering bison in Yellowstone, for example, and seeing these fumaroles and mud pots in this outrageously gorgeous landscape, but then at the same time hearing about, um, you know, upwards of 40 people being slaughtered in a gay nightclub simply because they're queer. And so it was, 
it was just this exercise in contrasts everywhere we went, where the land and the beauty of nature was salvific for me. It was what saved me and kept me going in the face of despair and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I spent some time, um, eight months living in our trailer, traveling, uh, in mm. the fall of 2020 and through April of last year. Um, and so different time, right. COVID, but I, 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 I relate very much to what you're saying. Um, that, yeah, that contradiction, uh, what, what I think what stood out to me too, was just the extreme beauty, extreme poverty, yeah. extreme poverty in certain parts of the country. And, extreme neglect of the land in certain parts of the country. Um, Yeah. I remember, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, it showed me that there are, there are so many Americas, like there are many different, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Yeah. I remember that so poignantly when I went to um, the Redwoods to Sequoia National Park and I was in the San Joaquin Valley camping. And I didn't realize until we set up camp and my wife came and said, we need to go pick up water. And I, and I was thinking, you know, we're, we're not the bottled water drinking type. We're always fine with whatever. And she said, no, the water here is contaminated. Um, There are signs in the bathroom that say you shouldn't even brush your teeth with it. And I think here is where the majority of our food in the country is grown and is shipped all over and farmers working hard and they can't even drink their own water. And what a contrast that that's next to one of our national treasures, these beautiful redwoods and these sweeping vistas, and they were, you know, covered with glistening snow. But on the way there, everything literally smells like piss. Yeah. And, you know, because it's because there are manure lagoons where where people literally drown and die. It's um, toxic. And I talk about that quite a bit in the book, this this contrast. And I also didn't realize that you traveled for that time and you had your young children with you too, right? Yeah. They were six and nine at the time. Yeah. Six and nine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was an amazing amazing experience. experience. Yeah. 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 And, and I may, I may sit down and try to write about it someday. Who knows? I'm not there yet. You know, I think it takes time to process, but, um, of course, of course. Yeah. This, this book was six years in the making. So I completely understand the, the need after I thought that I would be ready to write right away. And I did, but it didn't, it, it isn't what, what the book became. Yeah. Well, and I love to hear you talk about it. So, and I, and maybe a good place, I know we're talking about it now, but maybe a good place to kind of jump in here is this idea of queering the American dream and what that, what does that mean to you? Like, what is, what does that mean? Well, I think I personally can't talk about queering the American dream without um, reading the quote that opens the book by Bell Hooks. Yeah. And she says, queer, not as being about who you're having sex with that can be a dimension of it. But queer is being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and has to invent and create and find a place to speak and to thrive and to live. And I think first about the author, Bell Hooks, so this black queer woman um, who's recently deceased, the late Bell Hooks, and how she was at odds with herself was at odds with everything that was around her. And I think of my own family and myself um, as a queer woman being at odds with what is around us. And I think even of what we just talked about traveling around the world or around the United States rather, and coming face to face with people and communities and places that are at odds with everything that is around them. And how in that way, queering the American dream isn't just about making it work for LGBTQ folks, which is what we often think of for queer, using queer kind of as an umbrella for the LGBTQ community. But I think rather of hearkening back to that dictionary definition of the word queer, which is to intentionally transgress or subvert the status quo. And this American dream, as you discussed so beautifully in your open, just it isn't big enough. It isn't expansive enough. It doesn't work. It's become a farce um, to where it's almost a joke, this mentality that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and put on a a smile and fake it till you make it with a can-do attitude. That can work for some people, and it has worked for some people, but it does not work for all people because of the systems that were uh, strategically designed to disenfranchise so many of us. 
And so you can't just navigate those systems by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because you learn that um, your boots are actually made of sulfuric acid or something like that, that the metaphors just fall short at that point. And so queering the American dream means acknowledging that there are so many whose very selves are at odds with everything around them, are at odds with this dream touted by so many. And so the dream has to be dismantled and then reimagined in a way that's expansive enough to include the least among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you read that, when you read that quote from Bell Hooks, and then even just as I was reading your whole book, I was thinking, and I don't say this flippantly because I don't want to, here I am this, um, you know, white hetero straight woman. Like I don't want to co-op something, but I'm like, I want a queer dream. I want a queer American dream. I think we, I think most people I know, if they're being really honest with themselves, want that, that I don't know how many people, if, if they really sat down and, and looked deep inside would say that, that this is working for them. Absolutely. And especially as you alluded to earlier, when you began your travels in the midst of COVID, COVID has brought so much to light with the disparities that we live with in our country and, and the things that we viewed were okay, whether it's, um, capitalism or white supremacist cis-heteropatriarchy or all the other isms that we want to put on top of things. It's not just that those don't work and are designed to hurt the marginalized and the disenfranchised, but they hurt everyone. So yeah. capitalism and these systems um, are not good for straight white men either, even though they're the ones who benefit the most from it, but working 60 hour, 80 hour work weeks and burning yourself out and becoming exhausted and um, being in this rat race and being on the capitalist treadmill, that, that isn't life-giving for anyone, no matter how oppressed and how much power they hold. And so I think that's one thing that this pandemic has taught us that there's no, I, there's no reason to return to normal because the normal wasn't working. I believe there was a Brene Brown quote where she said something along those lines that's gone around a lot that there's no interest in returning to what was normal. But as uh, Indian feminist philosopher Arunhati Roy said, we're, this pandemic has brought us to a portal and yeah. we have an opportunity to step through that portal and reimagine something new to, to queer the American dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's reminding me too of the, um, well, and you, I think you referenced this as well, that um, in maybe different language, but something that Christina Cleveland said when she was on the show fairly recently, this idea of sacred imagination, you know, yes. like, which I, that, that feels like we're talking about kind of the same thing. Absolutely. That she talks about sacred imagination. And I, and I love her book, um, God is a Black Woman, and use that in my classroom as well. And the language that I often use is radical imagination, but mm -hmm. they could be used interchangeably that I really do think that imagination is one of humanity's greatest gifts, mm -hmm. that it's not simply that we can do better, but we can imagine better. And that's what empowers us to actually do and create. And all these things that Bell Hooks speaks of that when the self is at odds, we're looking for a place where we can thrive and speak and be and live. The only way that we can thrive and speak and be and live is by radically imagining something different, something that works for all people. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and then I think seeing examples like what you provided in the book and I, and I, 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 I felt that you were very, conscious of um, privilege and the fact that not everybody can do this. Um, but I, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about this, this journey, this, and you know, that, that you, um, that you outline in your book and how, sure. how you, how you and your wife and one child at the time, I guess, uh, took on the task of um, queering your American dream. Sure. So I say that the book is one queer family who left it all and the revolutionary women who taught us how. That's kind of our very short elevator pitch of what the book is. But a bit longer is that it, our adventure began the day the Supreme Court ruled our marriage legal and ended the moment my younger brother's addiction spiraled into a deadly overdose. And in between our 18 months of full-time travel in a camper named Freya, as you pointed out, across the American landscape with our toddler 
in tow. And to my knowledge, this is one of the only or the only uh, travel memoir that's about a queer family. There aren't very many that are about families at all. And there aren't very many that are by queer women, or at least women who identified as queer at the time of their writing. And so that's something new and unique, I think, that, um, that the book adds to the canon, if you will. But along the way, as we talked about earlier, we come face to face with the beauty of the American landscape, but also contrasted with the people, policies, and politics that systemically disenfranchise families like ours. But at each stop along the way, there's a different revolutionary woman from history and mythology who kind of guides our footsteps. And they are drawn from the fact that I'm an artist and that's part of what I do for a living as an artist and a, and a writer. And along with us were 16 paintings that were left over from my Holy Women Icons project of these different revolutionary women from history and mythology. And I had a couple shows along the way, but I didn't want to just put them in storage. And so here we were in a camper with this giant green Tupperware bin <laughs> filled with these paintings. And, and, I, and I just want to note that for those of you who have not spent a lot of time in campers, they're not big. They don't have a lot of storage. No. So that is, it's a big deal to dedicate a portion of your space to something large like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, I believe our camper was 140 square feet. Hmm. Um, and so very tiny. And it's funny because as we were packing, I remember having this, um, this conversation, this very thoughtful, intentional conversation with my wife about the number of socks we should pack. And so here we are like measuring the number of socks, but we have this huge Tupperware bin full of artwork. And I think therein, like that encapsulates our family so well. But what's interesting is that the bin came out, of course, whenever I had art shows, but it also came out in these really interesting places like when we were in rural Vermont and we were campground hosts at a backpack in only site and a couple came hiking up this mile long steep trail and we struck up a conversation and along the way they talk about how they're collectors of folk art and I said oh well I'm actually a folk feminist iconographer and they wanted to see some of the, my work but they weren't content with just seeing pictures on my phone they wanted to see it so it becomes like a pop-up art show where I pull the green bin out and they're hanging on birch trees and they ended up buying a couple pieces and then I hike them down to their camp um, and interesting things like that. But at each step along the way, a different woman who I painted and written about kind of comes to the forefront and guides our path with where we're traveling. Mm, yeah. And I, I wonder, could you, could you give us a couple of examples, maybe? I mean, I've, I loved them all, but you know, maybe who feels present? Who wants to be heard from today, perhaps? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, my absolute favorite is Polly Murray. Mm -hmm. uh, Polly Murray was a civil rights attorney who, when she started, was denied entrance into Harvard because she was perceived as a woman. Um, and that was the gender assigned to her at birth, but she and her writing if she had had access to the language that we now employ, likely would have identified as either transgender or gender non-binary, but that wasn't the language that Polly Murray had. So she always used she pronouns, which is why I'm using them now. So she was denied entrance into Harvard because they learned she was a woman. She was de denied entrance into UNC law school because she was black. Ends up finally going to law school, writing what Thurgood Marshall called the Bible of the civil rights movement and coined the phrase Jane Crow to accompany the sexism that uh, joined along with racism and Jim Crow laws in the South. And then later on in life, she feels a call to ministry and becomes the first black woman ordained as an Episcopal priest. Not only that, but when she presides at her first Eucharist, it is at the church where her grandmother, who was an enslaved person, was baptized. And all along the way, Polly's intimate relationships were with other women. So she was a queer person who experienced discrimination because of her gender, her gender identity, her race, and her sexuality. Oh. And sometimes I get furious that everyone who goes through primary school in the United States doesn't know her name, mm -hmm. that she did just as much work as someone like Martin Luther King Jr. And I say that not to minimize the amazing work that he did, but yeah. to acknowledge that here's this revolutionary woman, this queer, perhaps non-binary black woman in history, 
who's done all of these revolutionary things and hardly anyone knows her name. And she came to the forefront for me when we were spending time in Southern Virginia. Because while we were there, it was autumn and it was absolutely stunningly beautiful. Yet another contrast where you have these autumnal colors and these serpentine mountain roads just erupting with golds and reds and crimsons. And yet you, you turn a corner and there's giant Confederate flags fluttering in the breeze that are hampering this otherwise gorgeous landscape. And I kept thinking as we drove through that and hiked through that and came face to face with overt discrimination in the space as well of Polly Murray's quote, hope is the song in a weary throat. Give me a song of hope in a world where I can sing it. Mm. And I think of when she wrote that and where we are today and how, yes, we have made strides and made progress, but I think, could Polly sing the song of hope now? Is this a world where she can sing it? And the answer is, I don't know because I don't think Polly Murray would have fared too well in Southern Virginia in 2015 when I was there. I think it would have been a struggle for her. Granted, she was incredibly resilient and did well everywhere she was. But that's one example of one of the revolutionary women who was painted and in the bin and traveling with us. And yet when we stopped and kind of planted roots there for about a month and a half, her story and her life legends and legacies kept stirring up to the front in everything that we did, reminding us of hope and resilience and what it means to have the two in a place like that. Mm -hmm. And first I need to say living in, I've I've only lived in Virginia for about a year, but I'm, I'm sorry to say that the Confederate flags, you still find them uh, not in my immediate vicinity, but pretty close. Um, Mm -hmm. That was a real shock to me after living in California for 16 years, I was quite in a bubble to return back to, I don't know. I somehow thought that maybe the South had moved on and I know there are certainly progressive people in the South. So be sure you hear me when I say that listeners, however, yeah, it was quite shocking to me to see that still present in 2021, 2022. Yeah, absolutely. And this wasn't that long ago. This was 2015, 2016 yeah. that I was in, in the area. And now I live back in the South again and, and see that even still. And it um, continues. Well, it doesn't continue to blow my mind, but continues to infuriate me. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious too, if, um, you know, were these and I also like how you call them subversive sister saints. Um, so were these subversive sister saints, uh, did you feel for like they were really present for you at each of these points in your journey? Or was it something that you kind of looked back at and was like, ah, now I see her, mm. her fingerprints on this or a little bit of both? It was definitely a little bit of both. With some, mm. with Polly Murray, she was, it was definitely there at the time. Yeah. But when I think of um, Guan Yin, for example, she's the yeah. Buddhist goddess of compassion and mercy. That was looking back, especially looking back writing after my brother's death, yeah. because I was looking back at a time when his addiction was really spiraling out of control and wondering at the time I wanted to show love and to help him and to save him, frankly, um, but was also very angry with the way that he was behaving and the way his treatment was impacting my mother in particular. And so I remember looking back and thinking, what would this goddess of compassion and mercy say about what it means to love an addict? Mm -hmm. And what would she say about loving my little brother? And so in those instances, it was looking back, Mm -hmm. Um, but some of them were very present at the moment and were part of our conversations you know, wherever we were traveling and whenever I was doing events or, you know, speaking events or book events or having art shows that they really came to the forefront. And did your, I don't know if I missed this or not, or did your, did your green bin become empty by the end or were this, were there still <laughs> it some, okay. <laughs> well, it became empty. And then at the, my last stop before we relocated to Hawaii, I was um, uh, an author and artist in residence for a United Church of Christ church in in Boone, North Carolina. And we were there for about three and a half months. And I finally got my paints back because when I was traveling, I brought the green bin, but I wasn't going to bring my paints and my canvas and my easel. I mean, that was just, that would have been too much. And so when we were settled somewhere and had a bit more space, 
um, I got my paints out and started painting again. And so the green bin was emptied, but then it was filled again <laughs> by new paintings, uh, mostly of uh, women from the Hawaiian pantheon. And then they traveled with me to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, tell us about, um, so you, you kind of end your journey, at least in the book, you're in Hawaii, right? Right. Um, and you're, you've created, you've got a vision for this, uh, for the Te Home Center, right? The eco right. eco retreat. So I wonder if you could talk about, about that and, and, and where you are now, where that is now. Absolutely. So the work of the Te Home Center, which is our nonprofit, is work that I've been doing for well over a decade, but didn't become a nonprofit until uh, 2017 when we were had just relocated there. And part of that was because you can't really form a nonprofit without an address. And we were traveling full time, and so we didn't have a full time address um, to to form an official nonprofit. And we started off as the Holy Women Icons Project, but after about a year and a half or so, we realized it was becoming more of a project, more, more than a project, and becoming more of a center. And that's when we changed our name to the Tehom Center. Tehom is the Hebrew word for deep or depth, hmm. referring to the watery chaos out of which creation becomes in the Genesis narrative held by Jews and Christians. Um, but it's also syncretized really beautifully with this Babylonian uh, creation goddess Tiamat. So the Ugaritic yeah. for Tiamat um, kind of coincides with this Hebrew Tehom in a really beautiful, subversive, and I would say queer feminist way where you definitely see glimpses of this queer feminine divine stirring in the watery depths and bringing the world into being. And so what better word to use to start this queer feminist intersectional retreat center. And so for about five years, we worked on that on Hawaii Island. And along the way also welcomed another child into our family through foster care. But her uh, medical needs and my own medical needs were such that they couldn't be met anymore in Hawaii. And we really needed to be closer to better hospitals. So that's why we moved um, only recently um, back to the continental United States. And we're reimagining and uh, envisioning what that looks like for the Tehome Center here. I wish that I had a neat, tiny package to say, this is what we are now, but we're dwelling in the depths and that watery chaos once again and imagining what it's going to look like. But we still offer retreats and academic courses, the art and the writing. It's just finding the location for it all where we are right now. That's a little bit still up in the air. Mm -hmm. Well, and the fact that it's in the watery depths, you know, I, that makes sense to me, not only from your name, but also the idea of queering the American dream. Like it doesn't Absolutely. all have to be <laughs> rosy and perfect with a little bow on top, right? In fact, it never is really. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a helpful reminder too, because right now that's what I'm in the process of doing is kind of this reassessing um, where we need to put our focus, especially right after the book came out, because so much emphasis was put into the book. And now I'm thinking, okay, what exactly do we need to be focusing on as a nonprofit? And so I appreciate that reminder that uh, dwelling in the watery chaos and queering the dream usually isn't very neat and tidy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And side note, I'm so glad you mentioned Tiamat. Um, I've thought about that uh, recently. I was thinking about the creation story of the Bible and how, uh, and my King James version of the Gideon Bible that my grandpa gave me before he died. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it says, you know, in the beginning there was, there was water, right. And, and I don't remember, you probably know it word line by line or word by word, but, um, I always wondered if that was like a, just a subversive way that the feminine snuck in right from the beginning, because so many of those old creation stories personified that watery depth as the feminine. Absolutely. And even in the, in the Genesis and the Hebrew account, um, it says that the spirit of God stirred over the water and that's yes. how it began. But what's interesting is that the word spirit ruach is a Hebrew feminine word. Yes. And when you compare that to the Tiamat narrative of how the world is created, she has, um, a masculine in Hulu, which is kind of like a dangerous, chaotic wind that stirs over and forms creation. But when you take Tiamat and Tahom together, and then the feminine Ruach stirs over them, that's two feminine beings creating the world, right? Yeah. And to me, that's 
so subversive and it's hidden in there in the most, um, well, subversive is the word for it. I was going to say sneaky, but in the most subversive way that you don't see it just on its surface. And I think of the way it's lauded all the time and lifted up as this um, story of Adam and Eve and man and woman, but that that's, it's so much more than that. It's not, it's Adama who was this genderless mud being created from mm. Ruach, from breath, uh, feminine breath. And that the world comes into being because to home, this watery depths is stirred by Ruach. And uh, that's really powerful for me and something that's hidden in the Jewish and Christian narrative that I think doesn't get brought to the surface enough, but it's there swirling in that watery depth in a really subversive way. Mm. Oh, I love that. I know you've already said that for you, you know, so you've kind of officially left the church. Like that's not a, um, you, you know, you don't didn't say preach. I don't know if you use that word, but, but I wonder your thoughts on, I mean, even just what you named there is so powerful to me and such a beautiful reframe of anything that I got growing up in a Christian tradition mm-hmm. that I wonder if, if you see value and merit in really mining the depths of those stories to find um, the more inclusive aspects that Absolutely. were per- either through our interpretation or were really there. Like, I, I don't even know if you'd say that mm-hmm. that, I don't even know if that matters, right? If it's a modern right. lensing that we're putting on it or if it was the original intent. Absolutely. And, and to that extent, that's why I do still keep some toes in the church. In fact, even later this month, because with the book coming out, there's pride happening in Tampa, which is across the bay from where I live. So I'll be preaching there at their interfaith service. I'm preaching at an MCC open and affirming congregation. Um, And it's specifically because of stories like these or stories like earlier when you and I were corresponding in preparation, the story of, I say, Jesus had two moms, because uh, I think of what Sojourner Truth said when, uh, white clergymen were trying to say that women, white women shouldn't have the right to vote because Christ was a man. And Sojourner Truth, when I imagine this in my mind, she like whips her head around and looks him right in the eye and says, where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? He came from God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with it. And if we think of God in feminine terms as she who is, then God was a woman as well. I mean, that's just when you were having your your talk with Christina Cleveland, God is a black woman. And then Mary, also a woman of color. And that's where Jesus came from. And so I say Jesus had two moms. And then how is the world created? But Tiamat, Tehom, and Ruach. And so the feminine divine and the queer feminine divine is stirring under the surface everywhere. But the only way we get to them is if we put on the right lenses and we mine the mine and excavate the stories and and for me that's the essence of of what I do is what I try to do as an advocate and an ally and what we try to do at the Tahome Center is to shine an excavating light on the stories of these revolutionary women that are hidden in the crevices of our canons at very best or strategically erased at worst and so we've got to mine the depths of history, mine the text and read it in its original language and then we can find there it is it's right there waiting to liberate us all. If only we can get to the depths of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think what I like about that too. um, So if I think about the divine feminine or the sacred feminine and the space that is, you know, I have a, I have a great deal of passion, obviously, if I'm doing a podcast on it and I'm really interested in the, the sacred histories that we haven't been taught. And yet I, think sometimes, and I'll, I'll, I'm putting myself in this category too. Um, I think if, if we're not careful, it can become almost a reverse of like, or there's almost like a justification happening of like, no, 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 no. God was a woman. So I, and especially mm-hmm. I, as a white woman, I, as a white hetero woman, am mm-hmm. just as valuable as you white hetero man, even though we're not saying it in that language, that's kind of how it's coming through, right? Because, because of who's delivering the message. And so what I love about what you just said is it just, it just feels so much more inclusive. And to me, it reminds me that 
this idea of embracing the sacred feminine is not just for um, if you identify as a female, not just for our my personal empowerment, if it's not creating a more inclusive vision overall, if it's not contributing to queering the experience to use your language, yes. then it's not doing what it's, we're not, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is it that Marsha P. Johnson said? Um, liberation for all. Oh, golly. I'm going to mess it up now, but you, it can't just be liberation for some. It has to be liberation for all, or even that beautiful Audre Lorde quote where she says something along the lines of, it, it cannot be liberation for some women, even though their shackles are very different from my own, um, mm -hmm. that it involves liberating everyone. And if it's not contribu contributing to the liberation of all people, then you can't call it liberatory. Yeah. And I think that, that that can be a pitfall of kind of hashtag white women's spirituality yeah. is that so often we claim it, um, is liberatory and it is liberatory for white women, but it's not for all women um, and particularly not for women of color. And so I think we have a lot of dismantling work to do and reimagining work to do and queering work to do in order to make it big enough and expansive enough for all people. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned Audre Lorde because this brings me around to your, I believe you were talking about Audre Lorde in your book when you also gave this uh, fantastic power saw an analogy yes. <laughs> that I think is, you know, because then the next question is, well, how, how are we dismantling? What are we, you know, what are, how are we doing this? And, um, and so your power saw analogy comes to mind for me. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Absolutely. This is one of my very favorite analogies. And I have to give credit where credit is due and say my wife helped me with this as well. She always helps me with the best things, with strategic theism and with the power saw analogy. <laughs> so what, what I often say in the work that we do at the Tahome Center and the work that I'm trying to do in my writing and my artwork is that, um, stick with me on this, uh, but that women's empowerment and empowerment work is a lot like a power saw and that if you're using a power saw and it's not working properly, there's typically one of three problems. The first is that your blade isn't sharp enough. It's too dull when it needs sharpening. The second is that your power source needs to be charged um, because your batteries are running, running um, empty. And then the third is that your power source, the place that you're plugging into to charge those batteries is faulty. But oftentimes in women's empowerment work, we only focus on those first two. We focus on blade sharpening with uh, behavioral changes, meaning that we tell women, well, if things aren't working for you, you just need to meditate more or do some more yoga or change your diet or uh, take this class, pay money to take this class that will help you become better because you'll learn power poses to know how to stand when you're asking for a raise at work. So we do these blade sharpening exercises, or we do the battery recharge, which is probably the most um, obvious out of all the analogies, and that's self-care, that we're drained and we need to recharge. So we encourage people to have a spa day or take a bubble bath, get a massage, or maybe drink a glass of wine or eat a bar of chocolate. But those two things alone, while important, cannot make systemic change and cannot sustain people working in these systems that are intent on burning us out, which is why we have to go to the power source, because no matter how much blade sharpening you do on your saw, no matter how much you try to recharge your battery, if your power source is faulty, it's not going to help and your power saw isn't going to work. And the power sources that are at play in our world are systematically designed to disenfranchise marginalized women. And so it doesn't matter how much blade sharpening we do, how much battery recharging we do, because when we plug into that power source, it's going to fry out. It's as though we go to take that bubble bath and instead of bubble bath, it's itching powder. And with the blade sharpening, when we go to meditate, someone's screaming in our ear the entire time. And so in the work that we do, and especially in drawing upon Audre Lorde, I say we cannot queer the American dream and we cannot have true empowerment and liberation without addressing all three. We blade sharpen, that is important. We have self-care, but it's radical self-care for collective liberation. And we acknowledge and dismantle those power sources. And that takes a lot of work mm -hmm. to dismantle them and make them good enough so that they work for all people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other thing that was coming up, and I, I think you're already speaking to it, but that is becoming present for me is um, 
you know, part of the dysfunction of the American dream that I don't think I, I mentioned, but it's very present is the, the emphasis on the individual and um, that whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You did it. Yep. You did it yourself. And so when you describe those three pieces, I, I also, what also comes to mind is overemphasis on the first two, which are easy emphasis on the individual. Like, Absolutely. how do I take care of me? Mm-hmm. I am exhausted. I am going to fill my own um, cup, which is important. But that without that, that third piece, I think speaks to um, the importance of community too, that we cannot, Absolutely. and we can't just do this for ourselves, nor should we. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And then because of the emphasis on the individual, when we do the blade sharpening exercises, when we try to recharge and we still find ourselves exhausted and unable to move forward, then we're treated as though we are faulty and then it's our fault. Right. Well, you didn't work hard enough or you didn't rest hard enough. <laughs> um, and right. instead of saying, well, of course, no matter how many bubble baths you take and how much meditating you do, you still are living in the system. And so until the systems are dismantled and reimagined um, to be life-giving systems, of course, you're going to feel burned out. That Mm -hmm. that only makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm feeling like, I'm feeling like we're, I want to ask you one more question. And then I think maybe, maybe we're, we're getting to a good place to, I think so to wrap up. Yeah. this has felt really, really rich to me. Um, but the one thing that I want to, we've, we've talked about a little bit, but I just want to come back to you is your painting. And so we talked about, you know, you've, you had your big green bin traveling with you um, across <laughs> the country and these subversive sister saints. Um, but I, I wonder if you could speak to the connection of um, art and painting and, and your experience of the spirit, you know, how that's an expression of your soul. And I'm just making a big leap that it is an expression of your soul. So you can mm-hmm, see if it mm-hmm. isn't, but I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit too. Absolutely. It definitely is an expression of, of my soul. And I think, um, I wish I could think of the quote exactly, but there's this other beautiful quote of bell hooks mm-hmm. where she says something along the lines of the function of art is not just a mirror to reflect society. Uh, no, that's, let me rewind for a moment here, pardon me. But she essentially is saying that um, art gives us the power to create what we can imagine. Mm-hmm. And so it's this entry point into manifesting, if you will, um, what it is that we need and want in the world, um, the things that we are missing. Um, Gloria Anzaldúa says that in her writing, she writes to compensate for what the real world does not give her. And I feel that in art as well, that I paint to compensate for what the real world is not giving, not just me, but giving women more broadly and particularly marginalized women. I think of queer women and or women of color. Mm -hmm. And so, and I do it often in this folk feminist style because it's more accessible. When you think of traditional iconography, you really have to have a certain vocabulary for understanding what a lot of the symbols and the meanings are. But in the instance of folk art, it's symbols and images that almost anyone can understand, anyone who's kind of broadly immersed in the culture. And so it's an opportunity to give glimpses into these amazing revolutionary women who have otherwise uh, not been um, seen as much, not been told about as much. And so I see it as an entry point. It's not the, the be all end all for me, neither the painting nor the writing. But it's my hope that when people come in in contact with a painting of Polly Murray, that they're galvanized to go forward and learn more about her and not just learn more about her for learning's sake, but so that they can then turn inward and say, how does this impact me? And then turn outward to say, how does this impact my role in the world? Mm -hmm. Like Ansel Dua says, change yourself, change the world. Mm -hmm. Yes. And are these, uh, are the, are all of your your paintings? Are there images online that we can that I can direct people to? Absolutely. Te home. Okay. Yes, at tehomecenter.org, and that's t e h o m center. Okay. Org. Um, and of course, I'll I'll say the shameless plug that the prints and the originals, um, all of the sales go to benefit the nonprofit, both with artwork and with the book. 
100% of sales go to the nonprofit um, and not just to line my pockets. <laughs> I, I think that is a completely appropriate shameless plug and I was actually going to do it for you. So that was great. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll make sure to put the, um, the web address in the show notes as well as a link to the book and um, all the places that you can find Angela online. Um, Angela, thank you so much. What a thank you. What a rich and wonderful conversation. I I want a better word than wonderful, but it, <laughs> I truly enjoyed this. Thank you. I have as well. Thank you so much, and for all you do. Mm, thank you, and and thanks to everybody as always for listening. Um, so glad that you want to show up and <laughs> listen in on these conversations and. You know, if you like the show, you can always subscribe. You can give it a favorable review. You can tell all your friends about it. You can do all those things. Uh, contact me th via social media. If you have feedback or questions, I'm always happy to hear from you. And until next time, take good care. We'll see you again soon. Home to Her is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com, where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine, and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you back here soon. 